Well, I was, um, I was cleaning up my garden this weekend, a, a, a job that I frankly despise. Actually, I'm, I don't like being in the garden at all. And no offense to those of you who love it. Don't send me emails. It's good for you. I just hate it. I just hate it. But I was in the garden this weekend. I was cleaning out the garden. And what I noticed, I was raking the leaves. I saw for the first time a few little daffodils poking through the mulch from last year. And all of a sudden, my spirit was filled with the reality that spring has come. Spring has come. I love the spring. I love that everything is fresh and new. I love that the sun comes out. The sun comes out at like 6.30 in the morning and the sun stays out until like 7.30 at night. And I just love the temperature. I mean, not this week, but the temperatures are getting warmer instead of getting colder. Like there's just nothing not to love about spring, but if I was to be totally honest, there is one reason above all the others that I love the spring, and that is baseball. Springtime baseball is just, it's not like playoff baseball, it is beautiful in its own way, and in particular because baseball starting in the spring has learned to honor a truth that is true about all the major sports all sports everywhere on the opening day of the season um, it's always true that everyone on the opening day of the season has absolutely the same record oh and oh zero wins zero losses and on paper and in theory everyone has exactly the same chance to win the championship in that particular sport and that's true in hockey and football and that's true of all sports but in baseball baseball has found a way to honor this principle like no other sport because it is only in baseball that it is said that hope springs eternal that in springtime baseball, it doesn't matter what you did last year. Last year, the Houston Astros beat the Los Angeles Dodgers in game seven of the World Series, one of the most exciting championship series ever. It was amazing series. Last year, the Toronto Blue Jays were at the very last place of their division every single day of the season except for one. On the last day of the season, they climbed above the Baltimore Orioles and they were in second last in their division for the first time all year they climbed that high. And guess what? On March 29th, 2018, it does not matter. They're both O and O, and in theory and on paper, they both have exactly the same chance to win the World Series because hope springs eternal. And that, friends, is precisely the message of the resurrection of Jesus. That the resurrection of Jesus is about fresh starts and second chances and new opportunities and blank slates and clean canvases and a, a, a full baseball schedule of 162 games ahead of you. It is about the possibilities of the future because everything is made new and you already know that because we celebrated that last week. The question that we're going to dig into in this series is why? Why and how is it true that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, hope 
for us springs eternal. That's what we're going to be looking at in this series called Go. And so we're going to begin by picking up the story out of the gospel according to Matthew, Matthew 27, verse 57. We're going to pick up the story right where we left it off on Good Friday. Now, I know, <coughs> excuse me, we heard the end of the story on Easter Sunday. Jesus risen from the dead. Spoiler alert. I guess you can't say that after, but anyway. But we're going to pick up the story in Matthew 27, 57, where it says this. As evening approached, it's Friday. Jesus is still hanging on the cross. There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. And he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb. And he went away. It's Friday afternoon. The Sabbath is coming. It begins at 6 p.m. And Jewish religious law says that a victim of crucifixion cannot be left hanging on a cross overnight or it will defile the land. And so this disciple of Jesus, a wealthy man named Joseph, who had just recently acquired for himself and his family a, a limestone cave that would serve as a family tomb, Joseph goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. Now this would be contrary to normal Roman custom. The Romans quite often left the victims of crucifixion hanging on the cross for days and days until the flesh was rotting and the ravens and the crows and the vultures were picking away. It was kind of like a billboard for days that said, if you ever thought about being a revolutionary who rejected the reign of Caesar, just take a look at this and see if that's what you want your future to look like. And so, so they would leave it up there. But after, you know, the body reached a certain condition, they would take it down and toss it indignantly into an unmarked mass grave, which was sort of the final shameful desecration. Joseph goes to Pilate and asks for the body and Pilate agrees to give him the body so that Joseph can do what Jewish rabbis said was the greatest act of kindness a person could perform. The only act of compassion that could never be repaid, and that is give Jesus a proper burial. He washed the body and perfumed it with oil and spices, and he wrapped it in fresh, clean linen, and he laid it on a shelf a limestone shelf in the family tomb, the only person in the tomb. And he closed the tomb. He rolled this gigantic stone disc that was rolling in a track on the ground. He rolled it down a gentle incline until it blocked the doorway of the tomb. And he went home. In verse 61, it says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary we're sitting there opposite the tomb. They, the, the devotion of these women is remarkable to me. Unlike the men, they follow Jesus. They don't abandon him. They don't deny him. They don't betray him. 
They follow Jesus all the way to the cross and they're the last ones left standing there. Then they see Joseph take the body of Jesus to prepare it for burial and they follow him to the tomb and they're the last ones sitting at the tomb. And they, two days later, the day after the Sabbath, early Sunday morning, were the first ones to go and visit the tomb of Jesus. In Matthew 28, verse one, it says, after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us why they went. Maybe they went to pray. Maybe they went to grieve. Maybe they went to um, just sit in vigil. Um, One rabbi said that the, the tombs of the recently deceased should be essentially monitored for three days. It should be visited for three days just to avoid a premature burial. Maybe that's why they were there. Whatever reason they were there and whatever they were hoping to do, I promise you it was not because they expected what happened next. Verse two, it says there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, he rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. For the, for the second time in three days, God becomes the central character in what is happening around the death of Jesus. Except unlike the way God participated at the crucifixion, this was sort of the exact opposite. At the crucifixion, Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God sent no one to rescue Jesus. This time, an angel of the Lord appears. At the crucifixion, everything goes dark for three hours In this moment, this angel that appears shines with the light of the glory of heaven. His face radiates, his clothes are gleaming white. At the crucifixion, the ground shook and tombs were opened. In this instance, the ground shakes as the angel rolls the stone away from the front of the tomb and sits triumphantly on it. And in verse five, it says, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said, come and see the place where he lay and then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you the angel. See the interesting thing for Matthew, this is not a scene describing resurrection. This is a scene because Jesus is already gone, right? Like Jesus has already risen. The angel did not show up to open the tomb to let Jesus out. The angel showed up to open the tomb to let the women in, to let them enter into the tomb and see that there was nobody inside and not because someone had stolen the body, right? 
as you read the story, and some of the details we'll include next week, there was a stone rolled in front of the tomb and then a guard, a contingent of Roman soldiers who were posted to guard the tomb to make sure that nobody stole the body. And then the tomb was secured with the official seal of the governor Pilate so that everybody knew if the seal was broken, somebody had tampered with the tomb. And here it is, the women show up, the stone is in place, the guard is there the seal is intact the angel opens it up and there's nobody inside the tomb has not been disturbed and yet Jesus body is gone why not because he his body was stolen but because he has risen from the dead and then the angel says you have to go and tell the disciples that everything's going down exactly the way Jesus said it would that he would die and three days later be raised and then he would meet you in the northern province of Galilee go and meet him there and so the the women in verse 8 it says the women hurried away from the tomb they were afraid and yet filled with joy and they ran to tell his disciples and suddenly Jesus met them greetings he said and they came to him and clasped his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go on to Galilee. There they will see me. It's the most remarkable thing. Matthew uses the most unremarkable words to describe the most remarkable event in human history. The women are talking to the angel who says, go and tell the disciples. And so they turn around and it says they met Jesus. It's like the most boring way you could possibly say. Like they bumped into each other on the sidewalk and he says to them, greetings, which sounds super formal to us, but it's just the Greek way of saying, hi, hey, good morning. It's like they turn to go and tell the disciples and they turn around and Jesus is standing there with a bottle of Perrier in his hands, not to compare myself to Jesus, of course, bottle of Perrier in his hands. Like, hey, good morning. Just as casual as can be. And they are absolutely overcome. They race to Jesus and they throw themselves at his feet in this act of submission and servanthood and they grasp onto his feet and it says they worship him. They declare their devotion and their love for Jesus. I think this is a super important moment for Matthew that the women, this tiny detail, they grasp his feet I think that matters to Matthew. It's a way of saying the Jesus they met was not a ghost. It wasn't a hallucination or a vision or a dream. They weren't having some sort of visitation from beyond the grave. The Jesus they met was the Jesus they knew before Jesus died. Right? Because in the ancient world, they knew all about ghosts and they knew all about hallucinations. They did seances. They communicated with loved ones who passed away. I mean, all this stuff was illegal in, in Israel, but people all across the ancient world did it. They understood the paranormal. Actually, way better than we did, uh, whether we do. We don't give much credence to that stuff. They did. And they called none of that stuff resurrection. 
It could be a visitation or sense, whatever. None of it was called resurrection because resurrection means that a body, an embodied human being who was dead is now not dead anymore. This is Matthew's way of saying this Jesus that they saw was not a ghost or a vision. This was real. This was really Jesus in his body that they recognized and could see and touch. And yet somehow Jesus was also simultaneously in this resurrected state. He was different. He was he was the same Jesus, yes, but the kind of Jesus who could also, you know, in a tomb closed with a stone, sealed with a government seal, guarded by the guards, could somehow leave the tomb without moving the stone, breaking the steel, or disturbing the guards. Right? The other gospels tell similar stories. Jesus can eat and drink food and drink like a regular person, and yet he can pass through walls and doors. Like Jesus, you can put your hands in his wounds, in his wrists, and in his side, and yet somehow he can vanish and appear out of thin air. Like he's Jesus in flesh and blood, and yet somehow transformed. He's been resurrected. And not in the way, by the way, that Jesus raised other people's life. The gospel stories, the gospels tell three stories about Jesus bringing people back from the dead. His friend Lazarus, a widow's son, and uh, the official of the synagogue's daughter. He, raised, he brings three people back from the dead. But when he brings them back, they resume the life they had before. Right? They get hungry and thirsty and eat and drink. They get tired and they sleep. They get sick and get better. They eventually get ill and, and die. You know, none of them are like 2,000 years old and wandering around the earth and saying, you know, they, they went back to the life they had before and eventually died. That's, that's not Jesus. Jesus didn't come back from the grave. Jesus went through the grave out the other side to life again. Jesus wasn't rescued from death. Jesus defeated death. He wasn't, you know, rescued from the clutches. He broke the grasp of death and emerged from the other side. The resurrection of Jesus is Jesus coming to new life on the other side of death. And that, my friends, means everything in the Christian faith. The Apostle Paul, a couple decades later, would say, if that didn't really happen, then all of this is a joke. None of this means anything if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. And next week, we're going to talk about why it's reasonable to believe that something like the resurrection of Jesus really did happen. But why does it matter? That's the question for this morning. Why does it matter that Jesus was raised from the dead? And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time trying to walk through the logic of resurrection. And it begins like this. Right from the beginning of Matthew's biography of Jesus, it is obvious that Matthew considers the primary problem with the world to be sin. Now sin, just a quick 
simple definition of sin. Sin is a posture of heart and a posture of life that lives in opposition to loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and loving everybody else as much as we love ourselves. That's sin. It's a, it is an attitude of heart and life that is intent on doing something other than loving God and loving people. And that attitude of heart and life manifests itself in sins. So sin is the attitude. Sins are the result. The unloving thoughts and words and deeds that we all do. The unloving things that we do to people and the loving things that we neglect to do for people. All of those are the sins that come out of the heart attitude of sin. And right in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel, he says that Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. That's Jesus' mission. And as you read the gospel, according to Matthew, what you discover along the way is that somehow rescuing people from their sins is directly connected to the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus is the center of his mission. Why is that true? Well, here's the logic of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is going to be a bit heady, but stick with me just for a couple minutes. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says this. The wages of sin is death. In other words, the byproduct of sin in our life is death. Right? And you know this. It's obvious in its extreme examples. If you sin against your spouse by cheating on them, you could kill your marriage. If you sin against a friend by stabbing them in the back, you can kill your friendship. If you sin at work by cheating or underperforming, you could kill your career. Right? If you sin in your finances by living for greed and consumption and materialism, you will literally not just kill the spirit of generosity in you. All sin has a deadening, a killing effect on our soul, but you also destroy the relationship of justice with people who, the poor who get oppressed when the wealthy consume, right? Sin brings destruction. If you tell a lie, you can kill someone's trust. So sin results in death. That's the, death is the consequence of sin. So what happens if somebody dies who never sinned? Right? Jesus, who in his entire life never sinned, was a righteous, innocent person. Jesus never sinned, therefore did not deserve death and yet chose to die as an innocent person. What's happening in Jesus' death is that he is the victim of the power of sin inflicting death on him, which was a death that he didn't deserve. And so because he didn't deserve the death, God reverses it in resurrection. And so when God reverses Jesus' death, he defeats the power of sin. See how that works? The power of sin inflicts death on Jesus, which he doesn't deserve. 
So the resurrection is the overturning of the death sentence, which defeats the power of sin. That's what Jesus' death and resurrection is all about. Is it, about it is about defeating the power of sin and death in your life and in the world. That's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to defeat the power of sin and death in your life. In Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul says this. If the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. The apostle Paul says, if you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus puts the Holy Spirit in you. And when you have the Holy Spirit in you, you have inside of you at your disposal all of the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that rescued Jesus from the power of sin and death. And Paul says, if the Holy Holy Spirit can do that for Jesus. The Holy Spirit can do for that for you. The Holy Spirit in you can overpower the power of the sin of your past. The power of the guilt over all the stuff that you've done. The Holy Spirit overpowers that with, the, with forgiveness. The Holy Spirit can overpower the power of sin in you in the sin in your present, in the shame that settles into your soul because of who you are and who you've become. And the Holy Spirit overpowers the power of sin through healing and transformation. He makes you new. The Holy Spirit in you can overpower the power of the sin of your future, the fear of where your life is going, both now and on the other side of death by bringing you into an eternity with God where there is no more sin and there's no more tears or death or mourning or crying or pain. As the Bible says, the Holy Spirit wants to defeat the power of sin and death in you to make you new so that you become the kind of person whose life is postured towards loving God with all that you are and loving everyone else as much as you love yourself. And when that begins to happen, when the power of the Holy Spirit is overpowering the power of sin and death in people who then come together into a community where the power of the Holy Spirit is overpowering the power of sin and death and people are learning to love God and love each other. Whatever. You know what begins to happen is that the love of God begins to spread throughout the world. Things begin to change. Suddenly, our relationships begin to change because they're no longer structured around selfishness. They're now structured around loving service. Our politics begin to change. The way we organize our life together because our politics are no longer structured around power and domination. Now they're structured around the loving submission of all people, including those in power. Our economics begin to change. Our financial lives and our financial world because they're no longer structured around greed. Now they're structured around loving generosity. The way we learn about and use our planet begins to change because it's no longer structured around sinful exploitation. Now it is structured around loving uh, stewardship. Even creation itself begins to change. 
Suddenly issues like climate change are being addressed. Disease and drought and famine are being addressed. Uh, Endangerment of species are being addressed because we have postured ourselves as a community and as a species lovingly towards our creation. God's creation and the creation is being renewed. That's what God is doing in the world through the resurrection of Jesus. He's defeating the power of sin and death and reclaiming the power for love. God is giving birth to something new. This is what it says in Romans 8, 28. It says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up till the present time. The Apostle Paul says, you know what's happening in creation? In creation, creation is groaning in labor because the world is giving birth to a brand new world through what Jesus did in the cross and in his resurrection. When this is a favorite image, a metaphor of the scriptures, that because of what Jesus has done, God has come together. He's been married to humanity. The two have become one. And you have a humanity that reflects to the world what God is like, a God of love. But also, heaven is married to earth. That heaven and earth come together. Heaven is God's space where everything is the way God wants it. Earth is our space where everything is the way people want it, which often isn't good. That's where sin comes in. But because of what Jesus has done, heaven and earth come together and they produce a brand new world that looks a lot like earth but has the DNA of heaven. Where on earth things happen as they would in heaven. The world begins to change. So people say, well, if that's true and the world is changing because of Jesus' resurrection, why is the world not more different than it is, right? Well, think about what labor is. Labor is not instantaneous. It's not fast. It's not a quick process. It's slow. And painful. It's work. It's labor. It takes effort. It is filled with blood and sweat and tears. It's an agonizing process. And that's what's happening in the world since Jesus' resurrection. The world has been in labor as God, as God's people cooperate with God to be the midwives that bring a newness that give birth to a new kind of world because of Jesus' death and resurrection, because the power of the Holy Spirit is overpowering the power of sin and death. And we persevere in hope, in anticipation of the beautiful, innocent, new thing that God is birthing in our world because of Jesus. That thing, the world that will be born when Jesus returns. Right? It's when Jesus comes back again that finally the new heaven and the new earth, the new creation is birthed once and for all. When Jesus comes in judgment and finally puts to death everything that is incompatible with the love of God and with the love of people brings judgment into the world and removes from creation everything that spoils what God is birthing in the world and what that leaves behind are people 
people who live in loving relationship with God and loving relationship with themselves and loving relationship with each other and loving relationship in the world and for all of creation who will live in union with God in the presence of God because of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit for all of eternity. And it is a guarantee It is a guarantee because God has raised Jesus from the dead. And the power of the Holy Spirit has overpowered the power of sin and death. And God has set us free to become people who live lives of love and life and hope. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, hope springs eternal. And so, as we do battle with our brains in the midst of life, as we labor to give birth to this something new, as we battle against our conscience and our guilt over what we've done and our shame over who we've become and our fear over where we're going, we persevere in hope in the faith that Jesus is birthing something new in us in love as we do battle with our circumstances, our marriages and our families and our friendships and our health and our work and everything that's going on around us, we persevere in hope, in faith that Jesus in love is birthing something new in us as we do battle with the news and with the world, with our politics and with our economics as we do battle with a world that's at war, a world that is struggling under natural disasters, a world where everything, where things seem off, we persevere in hope, believing that Jesus in love is birthing something new in us because that's what resurrection means. That the power of the Holy Spirit has overpowered the power of sin and death. So that Jesus can birth life and love in us and in our world until the day he returns and we live towards and we live for the day that the new creation is born into our world. That because of Jesus' death and resurrection, for us, for those who've put their faith in Christ, hope springs eternal and that's why resurrection matters let's pray heavenly father i don't know where people are coming from today i don't know who dragged a conscience full of guilt in here today i don't know whose spirit's sagging in shame today. I don't know who is afraid of tomorrow or the future or what happens after you die. I don't know who's battling their circumstances today. I don't know who feels like they're losing. Because Father, we know that even as you birth something new, as Krista and I learned in our own spirit, sometimes in our own experience with losing Tristan, In the second trimester, sometimes the whole birthing process goes sideways. And I don't know who's doing battle with a life right now that's going sideways. I don't know who's coming in, feeling the heaviness of the world in which we live. Father, I don't know who needs resurrection today. 
But I do know that because Jesus has been raised from the dead, the hope in us springs eternal that you are in love, birthing something new in us. May you help us to see it. May you help us to experience it. May you help us to go towards it. May you help us to live into it and to live through the hope that comes through resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.